Is the is the mixer in the background of, of my audio bad? I can hear somebody talking. I don't know who that. Well, that was my wife. Oh. <laughs> She's making cupcakes, and I can't really. Well, carry on then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 24 of iFreaks. This week on our panel we have Rod Schmidt. Hello from Salt Lake. Andrew Madsen. Hi from Salt Lake also. Pete Hodgson. Hi from San Francisco. James Uber. Hello from Minneapolis. And this week we also have a very special guest, Mike Ash. Hi from uh, government shutdown DC area. <laughs> and That's I will nice be your fun. interim host today, Ben Sherman from Houston. Chuck is unfortunately out sick today. Ben, you did an awful job. You knew the episode number, and you didn't <laughs> ask Mike how to pronounce his name. We joked about that on the people. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a hard one to just... <laughs> Mikhail. <laughs> Mikhail, ash. All right. Someone, someone figured it out. Well, cool. So, uh, Mike, welcome to the show. Do you think you could give Thank us you. like a quick background on you for those who don't know you? Uh, yeah, let's see. Uh been programming for a long time, started out on Commodore 64, then Apple IIGS, then Mac, uh, before the whole Next and Steve Jobs retakeover. Um, write a blog, uh, Friday Q&A, that some people seem to know about, and um, like to do lots of low-level crazy stuff, uh, Objective-C runtime, assembly, what have you, but uh, all over the place. So I think most people, at least from my circles, know you from the Friday Q&A blog. And uh, just just astounding level of like deep dives that you go there. You know, I think that that's kind of lacking in the in the blogosphere these days. You know, just like those really really deep dives. Well, it's it's tough. You know, it takes a certain amount of knowledge. So uh, I'll try to fill in the hole a little bit. Do you have how much prep do you have to do, or how much work are those posts? Like, is it a, a bunch of research, or is it just stuff that's all just sitting in your head, and you just have to write it down? It really depends on the individual posts. It goes anywhere from I go from zero to done in two hours to you know spending a couple of weeks writing stuff ahead of time. So it uh, it all depends, you know. If um, like the uh, the recent one on on ARM sixty four was a lot, you know, I, I had to go through and and basically learn the whole thing from scratch because I really didn't know about ARM sixty four beforehand and uh, and do some experiments on my device and all that. So. It was a really good post. Oh, thank you. Yeah, one but some of, the of them that I really liked was the uh, uh, "Let's Build NS Invocation" part one and two. Oh yeah, that that was a pretty big job, too. Um, you know, the, the sometimes the writing is easy, but the code that I have to do beforehand is is a big job, and that was one of those. You know, the, actually writing the article was pretty quick, but I had to spend a long time actually getting the. And it's invocation re-implementation done first. And do you always release these on Friday? So you're like on a on a clock. Yep. Yep. Um, used to be every week, and then that got a little overwhelming. So now it's every two weeks, and I keep that up pretty consistently. That's really cool. I also got a lot of uh, help out of the uh, let's build key value coding just to see how things work internally. Oh yeah, yeah. I, the the let's build stuff that's my favorite kind i think it's it's always fun to just go into something that's interesting and a little complicated but not too hard you know and just re-implement it you have a nice clear goal and you know something to compare it to right. and so many of these things people treat them as if they're magical you know it's like oh apple does their special sauce and pours in their unicorn tears and everything comes out and you know <laughs> it's it's when you get, crack it open it's really not that complex it's it's fun to show that sometimes I think that's correctly. If were you the one who created the zeroing weak pointer before there was? Yep, that was me. Yeah, so I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff we can talk about, uh, and you know, I bet a significant chunk of the apps in the App Store are actually using some of your code as well from PL Crash Reporter. Wasn't that yours as well? Um, I've worked on PL Crash Reporter a little bit, but that was mostly Landon Fuller who wrote that. My uh, my colleague. But um, yeah, some of my PL. Some of my uh, work on PL Crash Reporters in there. Um, I have, uh, you know, zeroing week reference libraries, runtime libraries, whatever. See a fair number of uh, apps out there that use those. It's kind of fun. Pop up in the uh, in their license section every so often. And PL Crash Reporter is like the thing that powers a bunch of these commercial tools as well, right? Like yes, apps. that's right. 
uh, Hockey, Flurry, um, I think just about any uh, solution out there that does crash reporting will use it. I think there might be one that did their own, but, um, you know, PL Crash Reporter basically is kind of the gold standard. I mean, I'm biased, but, you know, it uh, it works really well. It's it's uh, open source, so everybody can take advantage of it. And it's one of those things that you just can't get wrong, because, like, once an exception happens and you want to, like, make a network call, yeah. you better be darn careful <laughs> that you also don't throw an exception. Yeah, the the uh, actual crash reporting code is very difficult to work with, and the constraints that you have to work under are just very painful. And yes, if it crashes, then you know when you crash, when you're trying to report a crash, that's just no good. No bugs in the future. <laughs> you try, <laughs> try harder than usual. Does it need updating when new version? I mean, is it is that is that core kind of super super sensitive crash reporting code kind of stable at this point, or does it need to get updated when the, when the runtime revs? Uh, fortunately, it's pretty much immune to operating system updates on whatever. Um, basically, the same kind of thing because the OS has to remain binary compatible with old software. Oh, it, right. uh, you know, basically, you can't change too much. And the, the crash reporting stuff is basically all fixed things, like how the stack is laid out. You can't change that across OS revisions because all your old software would break. Um, how to look up symbols and things like that, that's all pretty much fixed. Uh, where it does change is, for example, processor architectures. Um, we had to do a bunch of work for the iPhone 5S because walking the stack for ARM64 is completely different. And fortunately, most of that worked uh, as it was. You know, We got enough generic code in there so where we basically plug in a little bit of architecture specific knowledge and then it works but you know we actually had to test it on the real device once it finally came out and uh, fix a few bugs that we couldn't catch ahead of time did you guys have some advance notice that that you needed to do this work or were you just kind of racing to do it once uh once the announcement happened yeah pretty much what happened was apple did their big announcement and we said oh boy we better get this ready and then we realized oh apple's not giving any pre-orders so i guess if we want the actual hardware on the day of release we better go wait in line so yeah that's, no that's certainly scary to, to yeah. imagine i think for the most part it's not like a switching to Intel or anything like that, but it seems right. like uh, I haven't heard of any kind of horror stories about launch day 64-bit devices like causing problems. Yeah, but. well, the good news is that because, you know, the, the 5S fully supports 32-bit apps also, so there's really no big rush to convert your app over to 64-bit. You know, you get some performance increases and things like that, but your stuff works perfectly fine. So for uh, app developers... You know, there wasn't a big long, a rush to get your 64-bit version posted. Um, you know, Apple was pushing it for some reason. I couldn't quite understand that. But, you know, your 32-bit version would work fine on launch day. Um, but, you know, we wanted to get our library ready because app developers were going to want to ship it. And That's pretty good dedication to open source, right? Uh, going and queuing up in line yeah. so that you can uh, help out. <laughs> Taking it up to the team and buying the new device. Yeah, so that... <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's that's what I that's what I told everybody was how much of a sacrifice I was I was making by buying a new 5S for myself. So um, I'm somewhat naive on the 32-bit, 64-bit. Uh, at the at the surface level, I know it enables you to address more memory. But what other types of considerations would would there be? Like all things being considered, seems like 64-bit might actually be slower, just because you're having like all your registers have to be wider and that sort of thing. Uh, pointers have to be bigger. I'm not really sure what other considerations there are. Yeah. So as far as pure, just like 64-bit versus 32-bit in a kind of abstract world where there's no other changes besides the size of things. Um, Register size, that's actually an advantage. Um, it means the hardware is a little more expensive, but it doesn't make it any slower. It's, uh, it does mean you can do like 64-bit integer arithmetic without uh, having to do more complicated stuff to, to make it work with 32-bit operations. Uh, larger pointers means you use more memory, means you use more cache, does mean you run a li- little bit slower. So it's a, it's a trade-off there in the abstract world. But when it comes to ARM64 specifically, there's a bunch of improvements that are made uh, over ARM32. You know, it's not just the exact same thing made wider. So the instruction set is cleaner, which means it can run faster. There's a bunch more registers available, which means you don't have to access memory as often. So overall, it's a pretty good performance win. And if you if you ship like a 64-bit version of your app, you will have to create like a fat binary that contains 32-bit also, right? So, so that 
uh, when any device downloads your app, they'll be able to run it. Yep, exactly right. So you can, um, unfortunately, the way there, there's apparently some bug in the operating system when it comes to this support. So right now, I believe uh, fat binaries only work on iOS 7. So you basically you have a choice. You can either support 64-bit or you can support iOS 6, but you can't do both. Um, Apple is supposed to be fixing that, so you'll be able to support back to iOS 6 as well as supporting 64-bit. I recall there being something similar when the ARM, what was it? the S processor or whatever. Yeah, ARM 7S. Uh, Yeah, I don't really remember details with that, but I mean, it's it's ultimately the same kind of thing that we faced before. You know, there was ARM 6, then ARM 7, then ARM 7F, now there's ARM 64. And yeah, you you know, you bundle up a fat binary and maybe there's some weird constraints with the tools, but for the most part, you just, uh, yeah, Xcode will build it twice and off you go. That's cool. It's it's kind of unfortunate that like all your apps are going to be like twice as big, not counting assets, I guess. Yeah, well, the, the good news is that assets assets are usually the big part, so it's not generally going to be too bad, I think. Um, I, I would have to go look and see how much of a change it makes, but my guess would be that it's something like probably 500 kilobytes to a megabyte extra, which... If presumably all the shared frameworks are still shared. <laughs> so it's only... Uh, well, actually, no, I don't think so. The uh, the frameworks all have to be dual dual architecture as well. But that's you know that's all in the operating system. You don't actually have to ship that in your third party apps. Right. But yeah, the, the uh, operating system on disk is probably quite a bit larger as well. Apple basically has to do uh, a a fat binary build of all their stuff too. Sure. So as a like a, just an app developer that just uses other libraries, what type of considerations would we have to? Uh, to like account for, like for instance, like maybe using NS Integer versus Int, or I don't know, does that matter? Yeah, occasionally it's not too much of a big deal. Um, if you've uh, if you worked on the Mac before, you've gone through this already, so it should be familiar. Um, if you haven't, it'll all be new to you. So the good news is that most Objective C code, the way most people write it, doesn't really it isn't really affected. Um, you know, your pointers get bigger, but you're just treating them as pointers and you're not doing anything to them most of the time, so that's fine. You know, where you really get into trouble is where you try to do funny tricks, like you put a pointer into an integer and then you manipulate it and then you move it back. And, you know, you're using, say, you use a 32-bit integer for that and that worked fine before, but now you're stripping off a ton of the pointer information, everything explodes. So most of us don't do that. Where it really matters is with stuff where you're getting values back from the framework that used to be 32-bit and are now 64-bit. So that's where NS integer comes in, for example. Usually it won't matter, for example, if you ask an array for its size, you know, use count, it gives you back an NSU integer. So that's 32 bits before, 64 bits now. But it doesn't really matter if you're putting that into an int because int tops out at about 2 billion, and you're not going to have any arrays in your app that have 2 billion objects in them. So even though the data type size changes, in, in the real world you're not going to hit that constraint. So, you know, the compiler converts it for you and every, you know, life goes on. One case where it gets a little fun is if you ask for an index or something like that. You know, you do like array index of object or string index of, uh, or range of string, whatever. You get NS not found back. And on 64-bit, NS not found is a really big 64-bit integer. So if you shove one of those values into a 32-bit int and then try to compare it for NS not found, it'll always be false. So you can subtly break some code that way. So basically try and dereference it and you'd be off in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, what happens basically, you, it comes back as n is not found, then you chop some of it off, you compare, you say, oh, it was found, and so then you go in and ask the array for the uh, ob, you know, the, ind- <clears throat> the object at index 2 billion or something, and it's like, uh, I don't know what this is, so it falls over. So for the most part, you just want to make sure you conform to the APIs, you know, know what you're calling, know what kind of data it returns, and... Um, just make sure your code matches that. You know, if it returns an NS integer, then there's no reason not to use an NS integer variable in your own code. And if it returns a certain value, you just got to make sure that you're you can tolerate that. So don't don't just choose int and say, oh, that'll work. Unless you know, always got to know what you're what, what you're working with. Yeah, a lot of people, uh, like you mentioned, that were on the Mac before have already gone through this. Uh, I wasn't a Mac programmer before this. I was a .NET developer before I went to iPhone. And um, I recall people running through this when they migrated, say, from VB6 to VB.NET. And uh, there was this joke that, like, a long in VB6 was, or a long in VB.NET was longer than a long in VB6 or something like that. So you had to, like, worry about that when you were calling, like, a Win32 API. 
So similar, yeah. similar type of transition. Yeah, I all the data types. VB.net, so the, the data types get a little interesting. Um, you know, there's the the C standard doesn't say exactly how big all these data types have to be. You know, it basically gives minimums, and then it's up to the implementation. So on the Mac and I, on iOS, for example, um, on a 64-bit system, long is 64 bits, and then long, long is also 64 bits. Uh, on Windows, Microsoft decided to go the other way, so long is still 32 bits, and then long, long is a 64-bit data type. So everything is confusing and weird. <laughs> Seems like they would have saved a lot of preprocessor macros if they'd have just standardized that stuff. Yeah, probably. Um, I mean, they they kind of tried, but you, you've got the uh, the fixed width integer types. You know, there's int thirty two t, int sixty four t, and and so forth. So if you really want it, you know, you can ask for a specific width. But you know, that's all added on top of the primitives yeah. from the language, so, you know, you, it's sort of the best and worst of both worlds at the same time there. I wonder what their reasoning was. I wonder if it was like a Microsoft, people will never need more than X amount of memory type thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's hard to tell. I'm sure you could go look up the rationale somewhere, but it, I'm not familiar with it. it. It pretty much just comes down to what, what the existing code bases are like and what they think is going to break the least stuff. Maybe long was more uh, more commonly used in Microsoft for stuff that was necessarily 32 bits somehow. What do you think the main reason for the, like, why now, if we're not going to have an iPhone anytime soon that's got, like, 4 gigs of memory, uh, what might be the main driver for doing this now? Well, the performance advantages are definitely worth it. You know, you you get the extra registers and you get the better instruction set and it just makes everything faster without necessarily consuming a lot more power. So, Really, I think looking at it as 64-bit is kind of the wrong end of the stick. I mean, you know, that's that's the easy way to summarize it. But what it really is, is it's a new processor architecture that's considerably faster and more efficient that happens to be 64-bit. That's a good good way to put it. I think, you know, like the tech press kind of uh, runs with these headlines that Apple gives in the keynote, like, hey, right. it's 64-bit. And in the next sentence, they say, hey, it's twice as fast. And then people associate the two. Yes, yes, that's uh, that's always fun, right? Twice the number of bits doesn't mean twice as fast. It may may be a coincidence that they are, but yeah, it just means you can run like Zelda sixty four now, right? <laughs> and sure. I've been waiting for my one twenty eight bit devices. When does that come? <laughs> yeah, well, with with one hundred twenty eight bit devices, then you can memory map the entire internet, and uh, <laughs> you know you don't have to worry about sockets anymore. <laughs> okay, when's that release? Yeah, just just in case anybody took that seriously that's that's completely made up and stupid <laughs> i hear samsung's coming out with an android 128 bit android oh, not right, really. right. I'm, I'm just kidding <laughs> maybe they, they probably are though I wouldn't, I wouldn't be that surprised well they did you know release a gold galaxy s4 did you see that <laughs> yeah within a couple of days of, of the 5s while we're talking about the the 64-bit stuff i the stuff that i found really interesting was the um the details around the, the reference counting, like the, the optimizations there. Um, do, do you want to talk, talk about that in a little bit more, more detail? Because I, I found that, like, I don't know, I think, I think that low-level kind of optimization stuff is super, super interesting, the way they squeeze all those last bits of performance out. Yeah, the, the reference counting changes are, are really great. They're probably my favorite change that came out of all this. So, you know, Objective-C is, is pervasively reference counted, and there's tons of retain and release calls going on everywhere. And since you're doing it all the time, it has to be pretty fast. But historically, it really hasn't been. There's this weird artifact from the next days where basically every object has a reference count, but it wasn't actually stored in the object. And they stored it in this external hash table. And the idea there, I think, as far as I understand, was that the vast majority of objects have a reference count of one, and then they go to zero and they die. You know, most objects don't get retained by other stuff. So you optimize that case from a memory perspective by representing the reference count of one as not having an entry in the table. So by moving everything out into the into an external table, you mean that you make it so that most objects don't actually take up any room to store their reference count at all, and you save a little bit of memory. And you know that's not very useful these days. But uh, back when they were working on 32 meg systems or whatever, you know, every little byte helped. And that legacy just kind of stuck in there forever. So moved to the Mac uh, from the next days, and we kept the external table, and we moved to Intel, and we kept it, and we moved to ARM, and we kept it. And so finally, with ARM64, they moved the reference count out of this external table, 
and into the object itself, basically by taking advantage of some extra space. So the first chunk of an object is a pointer to its class. That's how everything knows what an object is. That's basically just is a pointer. Exactly. So this object is a instance of this class, is, is what it means. So that, that first chunk of every single Objective-C object in the system points to the class that it's an instance of. And that's how you do method dispatch and everything else, by looking up on that class. So the idea with the uh, changes here is you've got a 64-bit is a pointer, because all your pointers are 64 bits. But most of those pointer... Um, a lot of those bits aren't actually used because the address space is not actually 64 bits. It'd be a little bit wasteful because you don't really need that much. So most of these architectures cut it down. Um, Intel 64-bit is actually 48 bits of virtual address space, and ARM 64 is somewhat smaller than that. So anyway, you have all these extra bits left over that you can do other stuff with, as long as you're careful when you get the pointer out. So what they did is they borrowed 19 of those bits and put the reference count in there. So that first chunk that used to be just a class pointer is now a class pointer plus a reference count plus a couple other flags that they tossed in. And what that means is that when you retain and release an object on ARM64, it's way faster because instead of going out to this external reference table and doing all this manipulation to, to uh, look up the object's reference count, it's just right there. And it's a really quick manipulation. That's awesome. And so that, this... that'll make everything faster. You know, I don't know how much, but you know, every your Objective C programs call retain and release all the time. You know, you tap on the screen, and it's like a million calls to retain and release. So, so we can that's, re we... that's a big deal. So we can see our retained our releases. That's part of the pointer. Yeah, that's actually stored inside the object now. Inside okay. that is a pointer. Is that useful for debugging if you can read hex? Well, you, there were always calls that you could get the uh, retain count out anyway. You, know, you just call uh, retain count, and it'll just go in and look it up for you. So it's not really any any easier now for debugging. It's it's really just a performance optimization, I think. And that global table the same path of like when you should use retain count, right? Like, yeah, like, exactly. Like, when to use retaincount.com. It just never. Yes. Never. <laughs> right. Yeah, but it's so I mean, much more efficient now. <laughs> that, that's like, yeah, yeah. That that call you should never use is is much faster. I love how he's like, "What about I need to X?" No, but no. someone said that it was a good idea in this case. No, still don't. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely useful in debugging. You know, really, you got to take this as never use retain count in your actual code that you're going to ship. But if you're trying to track down problems, it's still handy. It's just you got to be aware of all the caveats they give you. You know, it's it's not always necessarily going to be what you would think, even when things are working right. Oh, and I think I think most of the people who need to be directed to that site don't know. Yes, <laughs> they don't know how to actually use it. Yeah, them. when I give advice like this, I always take a stance of kind of leaving off some of the more advanced exceptions to things because I figure once they get to that stage, they can ignore me anyway. Yeah, that's kind of like the shuhari of like martial arts and like learning, right? Like first you gotta like go through the steps and like don't deviate from the rules at all right and right and then you start to understand like more and more rules and like when you might break them and then all of a sudden you can like buck the trend and do your own thing once you understand uh, yeah once you you're probably never use retain count but <laughs> right but at least well, once you're you good to break the rules you don't need someone to tell you that it's okay to break the rules down yeah if you need to ask then it's not okay right <laughs> <laughs> one thing i like about pairing is uh anytime that i want to do something like take a shortcut or <laughs> it's a little bit clever or crazy uh, that you still have to justify it with your pair. And to me, that's like the, the best like litmus test of like, is this a good idea or is this kind of stupid? And you're already asking the question. And, you know, If you can convince your pair that it's a good idea, then it's probably good enough. I've always wanted to figure out a way to like have, you know, they have like the angel on your shoulder and the devil on your shoulder somehow to like just pair with the angel and then I wouldn't need to find someone else to pair with. <laughs> you guys see the angels, right? <laughs> I, I only have the one. Uh, oh. I think he's the mean guy. I don't know. <laughs> so let's talk about core data and binding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably what killed the other one. So I think the craziest thing about the or the thing that shocked me the most reading about this this awesome description you had about the uh, the the way the retain count used to work. The global hash table kind of makes sense, but then realizing that you have to have like a global lock on that table. Yeah, uh, like across the entire process, that seems like that's a huge. I mean, this, this seems like that's going to be the biggest win here is that you don't have this kind of the 
Objective C equivalent of like a global interpreter log, basically. Yeah, I think. Well, um, I think on more recent runtimes, I, I know there's code in there. I don't know if it's enabled, but it, there's actually uh, the tables are striped, so there's actually like 32 different tables, and then the pointer gets assigned to a different table depending on on its offset, things like that. And so each table is locked separately, so that helps a lot with that. Okay. But yeah, I mean, if if you're doing a lot of retaining and releasing in a heavily multi-threaded program, that can definitely be a bottleneck. Uh, and so that'll definitely help there, you know. And, and we're obviously going more and more multi-core as technology marches on, so that becomes a bigger deal. Is there a connection there between? So you know, we were talking earlier about why why uh, Apple decided to go 64-bit. Is there is 64-bit make it easier to work in this kind of many-core world, or is that kind of uh, orthogonal? I think it doesn't matter too much. The ability to steal extra bits out of the pointer like that can help in, in certain esoteric cases like this. But for the most part, I don't think it's too much related. Do you think we'll see an ARM64 uh, Mac? Good question. Everybody's speculating about it. I don't really know. My guess would be no, because I think Macs need to be powerful enough that um, Intel processors are really going to be necessary there. You know, ARM's, ARM's good for low power consumption, but they're not as fast. And I think Intel is catching up on the power consumption front faster than ARM is catching up on the uh, performance front. That's what I was going to say. I think, you know, like we may see a, a world where we have those, uh, what are they called, atom chips in our iPhones? Right. So yep, we'll that, that could happen. 3664. I mean, I, I have a feeling it's all going to converge to a, to an extent. You know, Intel is going to end up making low-power processors that, that are going to be in some phones, and ARM is going to end up making high-power processors that end up in some, you know, proper computers. And so there's going to be some mixing, I would guess, eventually. But I was listening I, to a uh, podcast, I think it was, um, must have been Accidental Tech Podcast, and Syracuse was talking about how, like, Intel's like a generation ahead of everybody else in terms of fabrication. So it's in Apple's best interest if they can... If they can fab the like lower power chips, but you know it's not necessarily in Intel's best interest to not produce their own, right? Or not partner with Apple to to get uh, iPhones on the Atom chips. Well, I I think my my bet would be that Intel would love to have Atoms in iPhones, but probably what's happening is is Atoms aren't quite there yet as far as power consumption. And what Apple would really love if they could have their way would be to have Intel make ARM chips for them, and, right. you know, that's never going to happen, but I'm sure that that's what they would love to see. So, you know, you'd to drop, like, a hundred million dollars on their corporate headquarters. And... <laughs> well, if anybody could do it, Apple. Yeah. Yep. Mike, I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear, so I've, I've read your blog for as long as I can remember since, since before the iPhone was a thing, and I'm a Mac programmer, um, but I'm curious to know what you do day-to-day, so what you're you work for Plausible Labs now, right? Yeah, that's right. So we mostly do consulting here. And so my day-to-day really depends on what kind of job I'm on. You know, right now, I'm doing a lot of iOS programming for a client that's getting a major release out for iOS 7. So there's a lot of stuff in there as far as you know, uh, some back-end reworking to take advantage of iOS 7 technology and a bunch of front-end work for the UI. And, uh, you know, in a couple of weeks, I'll probably be off to something else. But uh, mostly these days, iOS and Android programming, some Mac still. It all depends on, on what's going on any given day. So yeah. I think the really interesting thing about Plausible is the, the TLD is not .com, it's .coop. Do you want to talk about that, or is that just totally off topic? I, I think it's really interesting, but it might be totally off topic for a podcast about iOS. Well, I'm fine with it, but I don't know about <laughs> you guys. I'm fine with it. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, talk about it. Sure. So, the uh, it's not just a funny TLD. You know, it's, it's the way the company's actually organized. So we are uh, we're organized as a cooperative, which means that everybody who works for Plausible owns a chunk of the company, and we all make decisions together. And there's no real hierarchy or anything like that. We we are forced by the government to name a CEO, and that's Landon Fuller, but he doesn't really actually have any power. He just gets the title and some of the annoying responsibility that comes with it. But uh, whenever we make decisions about the direction of the company or what we're doing or whatever, we just all get together and hash it out. And so it's it's kind of fun. You know, it's, it's a different way to do things. And it's nice. I, it's a great bunch of people. And we don't really get into major disagreements or whatever. We always manage to work things out, come to an agreement. Technically, it would be by majority vote if it came down to it. But we always manage to have everybody on the same page in the end. 
so we all we all share in the power we all share in the ownership we do profit sharing at the end of the year if we have any money left over and it's kind of one big happy family so do the people that started it like the principals do they get kind of the bigger share and the junior guys get a lesser share or is it all nope. kind of one big happy family nope, it's all the, the only real uh thing like that is for the first six months that somebody's with us they're basically in, in like a provisional status they're not full members but then once that six months is over and if we're happy with them and they're happy with us and they want to keep going then they come on and they're just as equal as everybody else pretty cool does it actually make that much impact? The fact that you're a co-op, does it actually make that much impact in the day-to-day, or is it just kind of a something that comes up every now and then? Uh, I don't think day-to-day is too much. You know, we all kind of have our, our, our various jobs. We all know what we're doing, and there isn't much corporate government governance to do day-to-day. But, you know, any time we're, we're looking at a new contract or anything like that, like consulting contracts, things like that, we all, we all come together. You know, there's no... There's no uh, commandments handed down from on high where someone says, hey, you know, we're all doing this now. Congratulations. Have fun. It's interesting. I mean, I've, I've heard of co-ops before, but I don't think I've ever heard of an, any other tech co-ops. Do you, is, are you guys out there on your own or are there, is this like an established thing? We occasionally hear from another one somewhere, so we're not the only ones, but it's not that common, definitely. I, think Valve is, I don't think Valve is a co-op, but they operate in a similar fashion, I think. Yeah, I think they're, you know, compared to any other company, Valve looks very flat. Compared to us, they've got a little bit more structure. But, you know, similar concept, I think. So, um, if I could shift the conversation a bit, you've done a fair amount of, like, audio programming, right? Yeah, I worked for Rogue Amoeba for uh, six years and did a lot of work. You know, they do lots of audio software. I worked on all sorts of stuff there. Lots of of internals on their apps. So, uh, what is the audio programming world like? It's uh, it's different. the The fun thing about programming is that it's so latency constrained, and you need you know, it's a very real time environment. You can't have random delays and pauses. You know, if your if your audio code stops for ten milliseconds, that's you, the user can hear that. And you know, even even like animations, visual animations, if if your code has occasional pauses, it's typically not too big of a deal. You know, you drop one frame every few seconds. It's a little bit annoying. But most people don't notice, or if they notice, it's not that painful. Uh, with audio, if you drop a little bit every few seconds, that's a very clear, annoying change in what's coming out of the speakers. Everybody knows it. Everybody says, you know, oh, dear, that sounded awful. You know, there was this terrible pop, or the sound went weird. I wonder if that's because, like, uh, just by the way our eyes are wired, their eyes maybe are more sophisticated to internally interpolate between two states so if it, like a frame skips we kind of like can fill in the blanks in our brain but with audio like all the audio stops like so it's well, super apparent I, I think it's a bit like that what it really comes down to is uh, your your eyes are basically sensing in a spatial domain you know you've, you've got basically it's a grid right and you're you're seeing it, it, it's kind of like a video camera you know you got frame and then next frame next frame next frame um, the way your ears work it's more in the frequency domain Obviously, this change over time, but your ears are really fundamentally detecting different frequencies in the incoming sound. It's not like a one after the other kind of thing, but it's kind of sampling the spectrum at once. Kind of the way the anatomy of your ears work is it kind of filters out the sound as it comes in and it directs different frequencies into different spots, which then gets sensed by your internal parts. So whenever you have a skip like that, in a visual sense, you know, that's like this frame after frame after frame, pause, frame, frame, frame. Not too much of a difference, but if you're sensing all that stuff in a frequency domain, when you get a pause like that, it radically changes all of the frequencies that come out of that sequence. And I think that's really fundamentally what it comes down to. It's just it's a really different way of sensing things. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, I, I think of it kind of like, you know, I write for my day job. I would write, like, applications for businesses. And then I would go home at night and do, like, game programming because it would exercise sort of a different uh, part of my brain. And, like, you have totally different set of challenges there. Um, if you want to run at 60 frames a second, you have, like, what is it, 16 milliseconds per frame? Yeah. Uh, so it seems like it's something similar to that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is, definitely. And um, it, it's similar, but I would say a little bit harder because you... You know, if, if if a lot of action happens on screen, all of a sudden you can drop frames. You don't want to. 
but you can you can kind of get away with it if you need to with audio you really can't you, know, you have to make sure audio you would maybe proactively know that this is going on and maybe like uh, change to a lower quality Pretty much what you just have to do is make your processing chain be consistent. So, you know, typically audio comes in, you do the exact same amount of work on it no matter what, and then you ship it back out. So that, that's kind of the advantage. The one thing that does make it a little easier than, for example, game programming. You know, you might, if you're writing a game, you might suddenly have 100 enemies come on screen at the same time, and suddenly you're doing way more work with the animation. And, you know, you, you may have to take more time with the sound, there really isn't that kind of event, typically. You're not suddenly dropping in a hundred times more work. I guess the fact that you don't have a garbage collector makes that easier as well. Yeah, garbage collection and real-time audio processing really don't get along. Garbage collection really wants to be able to stop your code every so often, so it can go poke around and look at things. And Yeah, even... Generally, in audio code, you try to avoid even just Objective-C in general, because it's not quite as predictable as you'd want it to be. Huh. What, what so makes the core, the, the core low-level audio code just tends to be straight C or C++. So what makes, uh, what makes the Objective-C stuff less predictable? Just the amount of dereferencing? And... Uh, it's basically the message send mechanism. It's really fast, typically, but there are very slow paths in it. Um, you know, when you send a message to an object, typically what happens is the runtime looks up the method in a cache, which is really fast, and then it jumps to it, and off you go. And that's that's like a few nanoseconds of uh, to get that all done. But if you're calling a method for the first time, for example, then that's not in the cache. And then it has to go into this really slow path where it goes and looks stuff up. Uh, if it's the first message to a class, then it actually goes off and calls that class's initialized method. It's taking locks to make sure that multiple threads don't all collide on this stuff. And um, so there's it, it's, it's the kind of thing where it's usually really, really fast, but every so often it's really slow. And that kind of inconsistency is really what you're trying to avoid. That should make sense. That's one of the things, I think, that makes core audio so hard. I'm, I do. I work on music audio software for my day job, and we definitely have to deal with this kind of thing. It makes it makes writing our audio engines more, much more difficult than writing our UI code or something like that. Yeah, a lot of the stuff you take for granted you just can't really do anymore. So how many times have you read Chris Adamson's book on core audio? Uh, there's, there's a story. <laughs> I, I could tell stories about that, but um, I've actually only read it once. It's a hard Cor- one to get through. I, I tend to read before bed, if I read at all, uh, and that one is not a good one to read before bed. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually worked with Chris for just a little while, so um, learned directly from the source, but uh, a lot of core audio is uh, reading the headers and just figuring things out. So, yeah, core audio is a funny beast. There's, you know, there's some of it that's just inherently hard because it has, you know, you can't use any of these nice features and it has to run consistently and all that. But there's a lot of it where it's it's like setup code. You know, you're saying, hey, I want to talk to this speaker and I want to play sound in this way and using this format and whatever. And there's no reason uh, that that API couldn't be a nice say, Objective-C API, kind of like, you know, maybe AV Foundation or something like that, but uh, there's a lot of holdover in there from kind of the old old Mac way of doing things before Mac OS X. So, you know, it's it's kind of a half-and-half half API. Some of it is is hard because it has to be, and some of it is just kind of hard just because. So it can be a little annoying to work with, and you get into one of those, and it's like, man, this really ought to be easier. Yeah, I, I uh, started looking at the documentation and the WWDC videos on like audio, I guess, back uh, a couple of years ago when I started writing uh, the iPhone app for Delhi Radio. And I was like, oh, there's this thing called AV Player, or AV Audio Player, and it sounds really awesome. And uh, it has like a play-pause method. It's got a volume method, or a volume property, so you can like, ramp the volume up or down from zero to like fade things in and out and whatever. Yeah, exactly. So when, you know, that that kind of like high level setup stuff, there's no reason that can't be objective C. That all works very nicely. Well, unfortunately for that, uh, that API at the time the documentation said nothing about the the file that you give it has to be a local file URL. Oh, of course. Like, yeah, I was like, <laughs> "Oh, uh, I guess streaming is a lot different." And uh, so I had this really Frankenstein approach. We were just kind of cobbling together a prototype that would I would shuffle bytes into immutable NS data or NS mutable data, and I, once I got to some sufficient size, I would hand off that 
uh, not yet complete NS data array to the audio AV audio player, and that tended to oh work. Oh boy! Yeah, it, it worked uh, <laughs> under like good conditions. Yeah, it didn't work so much when you went in the old. Yeah, you're going to have some problems with packet boundaries in there. You know, yep. you need you need to slice up the data at the right points. Yeah, so we eventually moved to, uh, to AV player and have. Uh, uh, eventually AVQ player so we could take advantage of the <clears> buffering <throat> of the next track. And yeah, there but you go. That, from this point on, we're like, okay, if we don't like what Apple's giving us, we don't really have a whole <laughs> lot of control over it. We've got to drop way yeah. down into core audio. Yeah, I've done that. Yeah, it's one of the frustrating things. You know, Apple's moving to URLs for everything. And, you know, there's a lot of good about it, but the annoying thing is they, they often just don't bother to mention, like, can this URL be HTTP or does it have to be file? And so many of the, these things is just implied. It's like, hey, guess, yeah. try it out, see if it works. Right. Yeah, and then it'll work for one audio format, but not another. Right. <laughs> it's just an example of the leaky abstraction, right? Like, yep. it's like use use anything you want. Oh, except by the way, you need to know really what's under the covers because it won't work. Yep. Yep. Exactly. You know, it's funny is if um, we use a 64-bit high uh, or 64k high efficient. What is it? High efficiency AACs uh, yep. for our streaming audio format, um, but our Android app doesn't like refuses to buffer that uh, until it gets to like all the way at the end, and then it's like, oh, I'll play this. But if you give it an oh, MP3, right. it will play it no problem. Uh, the AV AV player family of classes has much worse performance playing MP3s than it does the AACs. So it's you know it's kind of like oh, mm-hmm. I'd like to have one set of audio files for both, but. Nope. nope. Too bad. <laughs> <laughs> so it looks like we're coming close to the end here, uh, so I'd like to get into picks unless there are any last questions. I've got one random, really random question, or semi-random question. I'm really good at random questions, I think. Mike, you, you've kind of, like, going through all of your build a, let's build things on your blog, you've, like, kind of built most of a, of a runtime at some, like, most of the moving parts of a runtime. Have you ever actually been tempted to build your own I don't know, build your own language or build your own kind of toy runtime or anything like that? Well, I'm sure we all passed through that phase at one point. <laughs> Played with my own compiler in whatever way long yeah. time ago. Um, not so much these days. You know, it's it's uh, it's fun to build the pieces, but I don't think there's too much point in putting it all together okay. into like a separate language. It's It would be so much work to fill in the gaps that I've left open. And... It it would be fun, but it's not all that rewarding. I think in the end, because it would be so much work. Yeah, it's like, the eighty you know, twenty rule, right? Yeah, you know, it's like in in five years, I'd have something that kind of works, or I could just go use an existing language now. And you know, it's fun to think about, but I'll I'll stick with Objective C and whatever other languages are out there, despite their faults. You know, yeah. practical considerations. Okay, cool. Well, let's go ahead and get into the picks then. Uh, Rod, why don't you start us off? All right, I just have one pick today, and it's uh, a blog by Dave DeLong, who used to be in the Utah area, and now he works for Apple. I think he's their developer evangelist, actually. And he had a blog um, called Fun with Objective-C, and he would get into runtime stuff and all kinds of tricks you could do with the runtime and things like that, so it was very interesting. So that's my pick. Cool. Andrew, what are your picks? Uh, I've got a... I'm going to repeat a pick. So I, I did this a few weeks ago, but it's Mac Dev Weekly, and this is sort of a like iOS Dev Weekly, the the email newsletter, except for Mac developers. The first issue came out this week, and I'm I, one of my projects is actually in the first issue, so I was sort of excited to see that. And then my second pick is I hope it's okay to pick a Mike Ash article. I know I do that a lot, but he's on the show, so. <laughs> I object. <laughs> uh, this is this is a Friday. That guy's Q&A. no good. Yeah, well, well, I'm picking it anyway. This is uh, this is a, an article Mike wrote about um, obtaining and interpreting audio data on his Friday Q and A, and I just started a, a new a new audio app that's doing some kind of interesting audio processing stuff, and, and this article is a good introduction to a lot of the basics of of audio data and you know, how that how that all works. And then my third pick is the Objective-C language list. So it seems like these lists have sort of, I don't know, fallen in importance since the advent of iOS, but Apple actually maintains quite a few email reflectors for discussing, for developers to discuss various topics, and the Objective-C language list is a list where people discuss um, sort of 
low-level details of the Objective-C language. Uh, it can sometimes be a contentious place, but it's always interesting to read. And then my last one is, an, is a non-developer pick, but I think everybody will like it, and that's a Verge article about um, Atari box art. So they did, a, they did this article about the, the box art that was on old Atari games, and if you, if you know what that art looks like, it's sort of like this hand-drawn, really colorful, sort of like paperback novel art, and then the games were these primitive 8-bit games. So anyway, interesting article. And those are my picks. Cool. Mr. Zuber. So who here is good at naming their classes? I think I am. <laughs> okay. Well, I've seen your code. <laughs> <laughs> oh, snap. <laughs> um, everyone's writing connection factory, manager factories, and stuff like that. But how do you get away from that? Uh, we all know that we don't want to name our classes like that. Switch away from Java? We can switch away from <laughs> Java, but it's, even, it's infecting our iOS code. I've seen it. It's happening. It's not just Andrew. But... Uh, you can go to classnamer.com and go through. It'll give you a bunch of sample kind of class names. And you're still going to call something a connection manager or something, but at least you tried. So that's all I have. <laughs> Sweet. I'm going to go create my virtual connection interpreter. I just keep a, a book of baby names open next to my keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> I object. This, this site is not realistic. There are no three-letter prefixes. <laughs> so we need not the, Apple compliant. Clonable transaction visitor. <laughs> Did you guys ever read that um, uh, the daily WTF uh, coding thing? That was like, so there was one of those a long time ago, four or five years ago, about uh, a guy who inherited a code base, and the guy who uh, had been writing this code had named all of his uh, classes and variables after kind of like fantasy characters. So there was like the <laughs> dragon slayer. But, like, absolutely unrelated, as far as this guy could tell, to the actual code. So it was, like, obfuscated with, like, fantasy uh, language. I, I usually do that with, like, test suites. So, like, my subjects are usually, like, characters from Breaking Bad or Game of Thrones or something. <laughs> I, I had a coworker who told me one day that he had written, he wrote this, uh, it was an assembly language program for spoiler controller, and he had used beer names for all of the, the labels. So like cores and Miller Lite and all this stuff, and I didn't really believe he said it. And then he said it made it into the patent on the on the boiler controller because he didn't he didn't know it was going to be patented. So I looked it up on the patent office's website, and sure enough, there were all those beer labels. <laughs> James, was that your only pick? That was it. Okay, cool. Pete, I like James' picks because they're like very um, they're very he he sells them. Yes, I like it. You got a brand. You know, <laughs> well, now I've now I'm feeling performance anxiety. The f so my first pick is the we already mentioned it, but the Valve employee handbook. This uh, this kind of the Valve, the gaming company, their their handbook got leaked online a few years ago, and then they they published it online. It's really interesting. They're 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 pretty. They run their company in a very cool way. Very flat, no hierarchy. Very self-organizing. Um, so it's it's a very fun read. I, I recommend reading it if you want to get inspired for how your company could be. My second pick is a beer. I have recently been enjoying Back in the Saddle, which is a rye pale ale uh, from Mavericks. One of the things I like about this beer is it is very low alcohol. It's like 3.7% or something like that. So this is my current uh, thing with beers is, is uh, session beers, like low alcohol beers. And this one is super duper tasty. It's got some of that spicy kind of rye going on. Um, you should so move to Utah. Yeah, right. Then I could uh, <laughs> drink uh, Heineken. <laughs> all they have is low alcohol beer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was shocked. That happened to me when I went to Utah. I was very confused. <laughs> and then my third pick is a little bit random. Um, it's a talk from Rich Hickey called Simple Made Easy. So Rich Hickey is the guy behind Closure and generally one of the just the smartest software guys I, I know of. Um, very, very deep thinker. And he did this really awesome presentation called Simple Made Easy about what makes a good language. And it's more than just about languages. It's about what makes good software and, and a good philosophy towards building software. And if you haven't watched it, you absolutely must watch it. It's not an optional thing. You have to watch it. That's it. All right, so we all have homework. Actually, I think I've seen that one. That's watch, it, watch it again. I watched it again. The reason I picked it is because I watched it again the other day, and I was I like my geek crush for Rich Hickey kind of elevated up another. <laughs> yeah, I, is that, I also is that two weeks in a row? <laughs> 
two rich hickey picks in a row next week. Oh, wait, we're going for, that's, we go that's for a true. turkey. Did someone else pick this? Did someone pick that last week? Maybe that's why I watched it. I think it was uh, a different one. I've so I've mentioned him in the past. I, I didn't pick a particular talk, but yeah. Okay. I um I was at Strange Loop a few weeks ago, and uh, I went to use the Wi-Fi, and of the list of available networks, there was uh, Rich Hickey's iPhone, and <laughs> Guy Steele's iPhone, and and like uh, Fingy Odersky, the Scarlet guy, and I was I, I almost took a screenshot of my iPhone. I was so excited. I'm a geek. What about Nicholas Worth? Uh, I don't think he was there. I don't know. <laughs> Okay, uh, I just have uh, two picks. Uh, we already mentioned the Learning Core Audio Hands-On Programming book uh, by Chris Adamson, and the name of the other author escapes me right now, uh, Kevin Avila. And that's just like the only good reference that I found for Core Audio, and it's something that uh, I think is really essential if you're doing any audio programming, even if you're just using AV Foundation, because it's good to know what you're building on top of. And then my other pick, uh, so like, got a theme going on for like guitar related picks. I'm trying to get back into electric guitar. I played acoustic for a long, long time. And, um, getting back into electric, I bought an amp, uh, that I picked last time. And I can't always play m- with my amp because I have a small house and kids in the house and they're usually sleeping by the time I get to play guitar. So I also have a, uh, Line 6 Pod. Um, HD, and I just upgraded actually to the HD 500, which is like the floorboard model, and it's got like whole effects chains, uh, you can do amp modeling and all kinds of crazy stuff. So anyway, uh, you can plug straight headphones into that, or USB through Logic if you want to record, and it's a great way, like sort of family-friendly way to practice electric guitar. Uh, so those are my picks. And uh, Mike, why don't you end us off with your picks? Sure. I'll uh, I'll start with probably my favorite blog, which is the old new thing. Um, it's always a little of a, a bit of an odd one since I'm so much into the Apple platform. It's uh, a guy who works for Microsoft and gets into a ton of low-level stuff about Windows and things like that. And uh, very rarely is are any of his articles actually useful for me because I don't do any Microsoft platform programming, but they're always really interesting and fun. And he gets into lots of uh, things like why various crazy backwards compatibility things were done in Windows and how they worked and it's that's always a great deal of fun. And the second one is the aggregate magic algorithms. This uh, is occasionally practical and always interesting. It's a lot of really crazy ways to do basically integer manipulations. It has concise and fast code for doing things like uh, reversing the bits in an integer or um, taking the average of two integers, multiplications, and it's um, a lot of these techniques aren't too useful. You know, they're like really super low-level optimizations for things we're not really doing too much of, but if you just understand how they work, I think it really enhances your ability to understand how the computer works in general. Well, cool. Uh, well, thanks a lot for coming on the show today, Mike. I really appreciate it. I think it was super interesting. Uh, you know, personally. My pleasure. But I think the the rest of the panel as well. So, is there um, anywhere like you're speaking, or anybody can see you hanging around? Maybe at a user group or anything like that. I go to uh, NS Coder Night DC most uh, most most weeks, and other than that, I don't have any current speaking engagements. But I do pop up uh, every so often. So, keep your eye out, I guess. All right. With that, I guess we'll wrap it up. Thanks, guys. <laughs>